Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed, we sometimes are, sometimes not. Anyway, this is David Eastall. This is the C86 show. Always bringing you the finest in indie pop, indie pop he says. Um, yes, each week I like a special guest and um, do an interview, basically. It's very straightforward. This week it um, is the turn of the lead singer and guitarist, Dean Wareham. He from Galaxy 500 and also Luna. So... I've got that interview that I'm going to play for you very soon. But before that, and as you settled into your seats, hopefully, um, yes, we're going to play some music just to get the party rolling. This is going to be from a John Peel session taken many decades ago. This is When Will You Come Home?
Excellent stuff. That is Galaxy 500 with a track titled When Will You Come Home? And that was a John Peel session that was recorded, I do believe, um, the 30th of October 1990. They did two sessions, in fact. Yes, I'm just reading this from the internet. I can't remember them. But oh, the first one was done um, on in sort of the 24th of September, he says, 1989, that is a fact, and uh, produced by the one and only Dale Griffith. But I don't believe he uh, did the other one. So anyway, interesting facts, please make notes. I will test you at the end, but who cares about that? This is David Eastall, The C86 Show, and this week's special guest is Dean Wareham, who um, I spoke to a few... Actually, it was quite a long time ago, but um, I've just been getting through the archives. And uh, this is the first part of the interview, and only part, in fact. And this is where I began by asking about the early years and how the uh, musical journey began. And this was Dean's reply. Dean, take it away. Uh, the early years of the early years of Galaxy Five Hundred. Well, I suppose really I have to go back to about nineteen eighty one, which is when. Um, Damon the, the Krakowski and I started playing together right when we went away to university but we were just you know neither of us knew how to play our instruments or anything we had a band called Speedy and the Castanets and we would do uh, um, we wrote some of our own <laughs> songs but we did yeah, we did covers of The Clash and Sex Pistols actually we started doing Submission way back then and that's a song that we later did with Galaxy 500 the Sex Pistols song. But then um, that was right when we were starting at university. So then I would uh, I'd have to skip forward another six years to when uh, Galaxy 500 actually started. Um, um, I was living in New York and trying to put a band together and not having any luck. Um, um, Damon and I, I think, auditioned a couple. He would come down sometimes. He would play with some, with a bass player or something. And then at a certain point, he suggested, "Look, why don't why doesn't Naomi le learn to play the bass?" And that's sort of when Galaxy Five Hundred started. Yes. And did you have a different, a definite idea of what you wanted to sound like and and also look like? Hmm. <laughs> um, what we wanted to look like, I think we just looked like ourselves. Um, so um, maybe we knew what we didn't want to look like, but uh, <laughs> we didn't really dress it. But those, those are just our, our normal day clothes that we would wear on wear on stage. Um, what we wanted to sound like, I think that really uh, uh, came from playing together. I suppose at that, at that time, if I look at that time, we were really... Uh, I mean, we, you know, we like all kinds of music, but we were sort of influenced by the Paisley Underground. That was so bands that had come before us in the in the in the mid '80s, um, the Dream Syndicate, Opal, uh, Rain Parade, and then on the East Coast, um, you know, equivalents might be say the the Feelies. Or even um, Yola Tango. We listened to obviously we listened to the Velvet Underground. We listened to to, to um, Big Star, um, Jonathan Richman a whole lot. But um, I think then then we just you know it's just really just uh, 
just get in their room and you just play together and play and play and play and rehearse and rehearse and rehearse and and somehow um, we came up with um, a sound that didn't really sound like any of those bands. I mean, obviously, we, we you know we have compared to the Velvets, whatever, but I, you know we don't really sound like them or any of those other bands. And uh, yeah. maybe at first it sounded a little bit like the Feelies, like a slowed down version of yes. the Feelies. And by the, by the time the first record comes out, it's uh, it just um, it sounds like us. Spaceman Three, that's another band that. Oh, yes. kind of, and I think I remember I remember buying their records. Um, this would be about 1987, I suppose, the first their records came out. Or, yeah, I just remember going to a shop and lo just looking at the album covers and thinking, "Wow, those look uh, those look interesting." Yeah, because 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 the interesting thing is because having done quite a lot of these. Um, interviews now you know, over a year and so I've sort of built up quite a catalogue and I've noticed that most bands have this a five-year narrative you know they get together they're not quite sure what's going to happen and they make a bit of a sound and in the UK and and obviously this was a major part of you as well was that John Peel you know was often the person who who people went to or went through you know it was almost like John Peel a John Peel session getting played on the John Peel show was kind of it and that would really bounce people onto that first album and then the tour and then things often after the four to five years it was the second album and if if bands in the UK went to America that seemed to be the you know, kiss of death really they they did, did never survived getting over the American tour so but with the with Galaxy 500 you also had quite a similar sort of um, time span as well didn't you yes well, I think, you know, the, the United States is very different. Uh, um, we didn't have a national, we didn't have a national, when well, we have NPR now, we have a national radio, but they weren't playing any music. Um, I mean, now they have a music presence, but back then we didn't, so we didn't have like a national DJ that, or, or, or a national music press, like a, a weekly music press. So, you know, for both of those reasons, things could happen a, a lot more quickly in England um, and then from England spread to spread to Europe. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, we would do it. We would, uh, our first tour here, you know, we're playing to about 20 people a night in the States. <laughs> Mind you, our record's just out. So, uh, you, you know, you, what, what can you really expect? No one knows who the hell you are. But, but then a year later in England, you know, we went on tour and, Everywhere we went, you know, we're playing to a couple of hundred people or, or, or more in London. It could. Um, yeah, well, the, the music, pre the music press here picked up on you very quickly. And obviously, John Peel also, you did several uh, sessions for him as well, didn't you? Including. Yes, we did two, two Peel sessions. Yeah. And also the, you did the cover of the Jonathan Richmond, Don't Let Our Youth Go to Waste, which obviously shot up to the, I think, apparently the sort of the top 50 in the John Peel Festive 50, which was one of those must listen to things over the Christmas period where John Peel played the best of the year. So so obviously that that was a kind of a big boost in this country and obviously Europe as well. Yeah. And, and having a good good label signing with a rough trade. And I think when I when our records did come out in England, they came out almost um, what like the first two came out one one on top of the other very quickly. Yes. And then and obviously the other thing that I've noticed is that most people after they've had that experience of being in, in a band, 
and then sort of it goes slightly lopsided. They they sort of put music away for a bit, but you you kept persevering, didn't you? You didn't sort of slow down well, after. I suppose that's, I actually you know somehow started to make a living doing it, so that that helps. <laughs> but I, certainly, I can see. You know, yeah, you can you can achieve this level of sort of uh, fake rock star, <laughs> especially in England. You can have your pictures and all these, in, you know, in sounds and melody maker and enemy and think and be on the in the independent charts, and it's almost like you're a real rock star. But actually, there's no there's not not really money coming in from that, so you weren't really. No, but it feels like. Well, it, well, it's interesting because actually that was one, you know, I, I think most people found after that four to five years, they hadn't quite done any of the, the proper admin. They hadn't got the manager sorted out and they certainly weren't making any money. And I think the dynamic within the band themselves was enough to make them all sort of just think, well, what's the point? And that was often when people, you know, put their guitars away for a, a few decades before bringing them out again. So I think that that's kind of one thing that happens. Yeah. And as you mentioned, some of those bands, they try to come to America and it's it's touring here is brutal. It's just. Uh, well, I, uh, I mean, it's, it's one thing to play play Los Angeles and New York, but it's it's long, long drives and to, to places where no one's heard of you. So. Yeah, well, I, I kind of got the impression, which I'd never appreciated before, but everybody, you know, it is like, well, why did the man finish? And it's like, well, we did America and that went badly. <laughs> and then, yes. you know, so that, well, that was. Often, yes. often bands split up after split up after a tour. <laughs> I mean, it can be it can be hard going. And did you have a moment with you know Galaxy Five Hundred before your next adventure? Did you have a moment where you decided that was going to be it? Um, well, I think at the end at the end of our European tour in nineteen ninety, I decided that was going to be it because I just I didn't not that I mean the tour itself went fine in a way, but I just uh, uh, was there was not a healthy dynamic in the band i i would say i mean i you know people are always ask you what what happened with galaxy 500 i think that the simplest explanation is that it's a it's a was a trio which is a difficult number for a band i think um a three-piece to keep together especially if uh, if if two of them are, are a couple it's just kind of an un, it's just it's just not going to work in the long haul i don't think Yes. Except for Yola Tango, that'd be the the, the, uh, the exception. But um... well, it's interesting because I spoke to one of the members of the the Copto Twins, and um, who's now got a record label. But he wasn't, you know, there was Liz and Robin who were a couple, and then it was him. Yeah. You know? So so in a way, they did manage to sort of go for a few years and do quite a few albums. That's but... true. They did. They managed to go on for quite a while. But then, I mean, they they uh, on tour they were. Because you know, I toured with them twice, they were a five-piece band. Yes, and I think that's um, was probably more fun for, for for Simon than just being in a van with the other two. For... That's right. But I think with Simon, he said that you know the mental health of the couple wasn't good, and you know, he, well, eventually... that's that's true. I witnessed that firsthand, also. Yes, and, and um. And I don't know if any of them speak to each other, do they? But. Well, I think that um, from what Simon said, that, um, 
you know, he gets on, you know, he occasionally sees Liz at, you know, the occasional event that they might sort of bump into each other. But <clears throat> apart from that, I think that it's all just kind of, it's long gone, you know. So when anybody ever asks, right. do you ever want to reform the band? It's like, you can't even imagine going there. You know, it's like yeah. people don't understand the complexities and the, the mental angst that some of them, the sort of the men. It's true. It's true. I mean, all, all lovely people, all of them, you know, Simon and Robin and Liz, you know, they're all great. Um, but I can see why, you know, why Liz doesn't want to contemplate going back into that or I don't, I don't know. You can just see why people, yeah, it just gets complicated and it's as if someone's asking you, do you want to go back to, to, um, to high school? <laughs> and I think David Byrne said that once. It's like, it's someone asking, do you want to get back together with your girlfriend from high school? And you're like, well, let me think about it. <laughs> could be okay but no i don't think i want to do that no but it also the quite interesting thing with galaxy 500 and then with the next bit was that the other the other thing that i've found with a lot of these bands from that um indie scene from the 80s is that you know there was the sound they, were, they, they weren't ever part of a scene even though as a fan you thought oh everyone must have been you know like hanging out with each other and they go no not at all we hardly ever saw the other bands but then no. their musical things changed you know there was the manchester scene or manchester and there was also the grunge scene and a lot of the time you know and so all that jingly jangly kind of smiths you know and that kind of sound that was very you know kind of quite dominant for a few years just right. to become unfashionable and everybody wanted the stone roses the happy mondays and the brave scene and then there was obviously the grunge scene but with with you know galaxy 500 and then your next lineup you kind of managed to sort of somehow sail through those kind of trends yeah well certainly i, I mean i feel like grunge was or was already happening all over the United States. It wasn't called grunge, maybe until, I don't know, 89 perhaps, but it was, but that's sort of, that's the kind of music that was going on in Boston too, or it became identified with, with Seattle. So we were, it was, there was a lot, of, well, also what they call pig fuck music, which is just a lot of heavier, uh, more aggressive, uh, like bands like Killdozer. Yes. And so we were, um, yeah, we were kind of bucking against that trend here and didn't really have much in common with the Manchester thing either, obviously. But, but you... um, perhaps that's that's part of why uh, the records still sound interesting 25 years later. Yes, but obviously sort of coming out of one band and going and forming another, is it's it, not many people have done that, I've noticed. There's only a few artists that I've spoke to who've really stuck with music without any gaps, you know, and there was David Gedge from The Wedding Present. And I'm just kind of struggling to think of anybody else. Mostly people have had a bit of a, so like, that's it, we're going to have 10, 15 right. years. So, so you, you know, you're quite unusual in the sense that you've thought, no, it's music or, you know, like, and also people like Lemmy or David Bowie, they also stuck with music up to that point where things happened. So, that, so it's quite unusual to sort of meet an artist who really did stick with it all the time. Yeah, well, I suppose I've, I've been, I've been lucky. I mean, although I'm, you know, always referred to as a cult artist, or I, I don't, yeah, so, somehow I, 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 I make a living doing this. And did you? Um, and was it it's much? Not, I mean, I would make more if I were a school teacher in the New York City public school system. I think if I had a, a good union job like that, but but it's okay. I yeah. have a lot of free time. And did you? But you no, I didn't imagine ever that um, 
that I'd be doing this at age 54. <laughs> God, the same but, age. And I, and I think that's a healthy attitude to have going into it. Not, not like, oh, I'm going to go into this and be like a huge star. Yes. So that's an adolescent dream, really. So I think all of us, when we went into it in Galaxy 500, we, uh, we didn't view it as a, as a life uh, career. But yeah. somehow it, it turned into that. It did. And what was your experience with, with your, the follow-up, Luna? Luna. Well, Luna lasted longer. We lasted 12 years and then, and then broke up for 10 years. And now we're playing together again. Um, so, well, it was a very different, it was, it was different times. This was the, the nineties, the compact disc era and an era when the, I think the music business was, was turning super profits, everything changed. So we got, we were assigned to a major label because after the success of Nirvana, the major labels were signing every, you know, it was very easy to get signed. Yes. And did you, um, um, and, in, and obviously you've had a few member changes and, and you've also got your partner in the band as well. And has that sort of been, yes. and has that been? Well, it? we had a couple of member changes and again, people think of Luna, that some of them had, oh, so many changes. And it's like, no, actually I've only had two. <laughs> but, a, uh, but a change of drummer after our third album. And then um, Britta, who's now my wife, um, replaced Justin Harwood, our bassist, after the, the fifth album when he, he moved back to New Zealand. He, he, he saw the writing on the wall, I think, because the, um, the, the band was just, it was dropped then from a lecture. I, I don't know, things were getting, he, he got out at just the right time. Yes. Um, but yes, it's, uh, from that point, we continued another uh, four or five years with Britta and, and, and um, as, as the bass player. And then um, I then I had enough. I think we'd all had had enough of each other for a while. And and did it did it have a moment where you thought that's that's it? And with it, with any plans of ever sort of having it come back again, or was that quite un, unexpected when you? Well, sort of... start, I think it just sort of starts. It starts building. It's it's difficult to keep a band together. And and again, it was uh, you know it's. Well, it's complicated inside the band, and then there are pressures of sort of what what was happening to the to the music business at that at that time when things there's sort of a there's a down to all of a sudden everyone is selling one tenth of the number of records that they used to. But um, I don't know. More than that, it just felt like we were tired of each other. And, do you, have you, and have you found your fans have sort of stayed with you from the beginning or have people just sort of come and gone through your musical career? Well, I have, I mean, I have, there are some, there are some people who like, you know, Galaxy 500 and more than Luna. There's some people who like both, but um, certainly when we go out on tour live now, we have, you know, there a lot of people there have been fans for 20 years so yes and what would you what would you say to your 18 year old self you know some wise advice that you would have <laughs> uh, you wish you'd known or somebody just sort of tapped you on the shoulder and had a quick word with you mm. well i you know i could have used just reading a, 
a book about the, the music business at that age. Not at 18, perhaps at uh, 24, which is when we really, well, 22, when we started that band in, in earnest. Um, could have used a good uh, manager too, I think. Just, I don't know, someone who could have, because I think often you, you, you start a band and you, you're just getting together in a room and writing songs, but you have no idea how any of it works. So it would have been useful to have someone explain i think for all of us for all three of us to have someone explain yes did you manage because i did speak to i think it was a guy from the very things and he was saying that um you know he's got a new band but he never plays anything from the very things because he doesn't own the the music anymore which always seemed kind of a bit obscene really all to do with the publishing did you have did you manage to sort of navigate that tricky water okay well you can I mean, you can play whatever songs you, he can play whatever songs he he doesn't need to own the rights to. It. Maybe he just doesn't want to. But, or, I mean, anybody's entitled to can go out and play uh, Galaxy Five Hundred songs. I, and I I have done that. I've gone and done tours playing Galaxy Five Hundred. I don't think the other two were thrilled about it, but I think they recognize it's not crime. Um, <laughs> Yes, quite. And uh, yeah. what, what's your sort of plans for the sort I mean, of... Other, there are other bands who don't even bother with that. They just, I mean, like, say, the Lemonheads are on tour, but it's really just Evan Dando, isn't it, with playing Lemonhead songs, but it's not like it's actually... Yes. Know, a lot of people do that. There's quite a few bands, I, I think quite a few from the 60s, where there's a sort of a, the title of a member of the band saying yes. so-and-so's Barclay James Harvest or so-and-so's yes, exactly. Wishbone Ash, yeah. you know. So so obviously, you know, various members are kind of claiming the rights to a band. I, I just kind of realised that over the years, you know, having heard various stories that, you know, the business side of music is so tricky and I think everybody just thinks, God, I wish I had signed or not signed the sort of necessary paperwork to um, avoid a lot of uh, problems later on. Well, that's true, and they, you know, famously they sort of prey upon the, the young in a, in a way that you're, you're young and you're like, I just, you know, someone, like, look, they've offered us $10,000. That's a lot of money, and like, we should do that. And you don't read the fine print, so you, you do need help there early on. And you, you, have, to, you yes. have to be aware of, uh, And just, um, just lastly, what have you got planned for 2018? Um, I've got, we're playing a few more Luna shows and then I, ha I have a, a record I've done with a, a friend of mine that, um, his, he records as Cheval Sombre. Um, uh, it's a, it's an album of covers of sort of Western songs, like from like cow cowboy songs, like Marty, Marty Robbins type things. And, um, not that it really... Obviously, I'm not going to sound like a real cowboy. <laughs> sort of cowboy songs meets Galaxy 500, sort of. Anyway, I, I really like it, and that'll be out uh, maybe this summer. It'll be called Dean Wareham versus Cheval Sombra. He, he sings half the songs, and I sing half the songs. Brilliant. Anyway, and Watson and his Britta got much many projects on this year. Britta is right now working on a, film, a short film score. And she was very involved with that record too, and it was it was produced. Uh, she plays all over it. Produced by Jason Queer of Papercuts. Do you know that band? No. Oh, you would like them. And that is the last part of the interview, and the only part of the interview with Dean Wareham, a one-time member of Galaxy Five Hundred and also Luna, and also various other musical projects. If you want to find out more information, Google.
you will find something somewhere on the internet. Anyway, thank you ever so much for listening. A huge thank you for, to Dean for that interview, which um, actually I sort of was looking, it was begin, the beginning of 2018. So those musical projects he might have been talking about have been and gone. And if anybody knows the date that the uh, Galaxy 500 played the Norwich Art Centre, it would have been around 1990. Um, I would love to know, because I did go to that in, uh, gig, and um, I did interview the band then in the bar, and I was just kind of curious, but I couldn't find anything. Anyway, if you want to contact me, you can via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just go to at C86show, and also all these shows have been podcasts, and you can find them on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, and Mixcloud. Anyway, thank you for listening, if you still are. This is going to be more Galaxy 500 and this is a track titled Strange. Have a great week.